HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by PASA Sustainable Agriculture. Learn more about PASA's 2021 virtual conference at pasafarming.org conference. You are listening to Fields, the podcast with Melissa Metric and Wythe Marshall. On Fields, we're bringing you the stories of people who are working to grow the field of urban agriculture. For money, for fun, to feed the hungry, to green the city, or for entirely other reasons. In each episode of Fields, we'll delve into one kind of food that's grown in and around New York City and beyond, one technology used to grow food, or one critical element inside of food. Moreover, we'll investigate all the whys behind getting up in the morning and working as a farmer in the city today. You don't need to be a farmer to enjoy this podcast, or even a foodie. We're going to tell you fascinating stories and break down the realities and possible futures of urban farming to their elements, examining each in turn. Hey, I'm Wife Marshall, and as ever, we have the amazing Melissa Metric. Hi, guys. Today, we are talking to uh, someone we really admire, um, we've learned a lot from, and we're excited to check in with, Allie Wist. Hello. Thank you for having me. It is an honor. Thank you so much for, <laughs> for taking uh, these conversations into the, the more formal register of podcast, you know, very serious stuff. <laughs> But yeah, that's a weird time, lots going on. So it's, it feels like really good time to check in because, you know, um, lots of pieces of the food and ag world um, and some of it overlaps with things we're, we're studying and, and teaching about and, and researching and some of it is, is really news. Um, so I think it'll be great to just, you know, kind of check in. Allie, could you kind of introduce yourself uh, so people know who you are and where to, where to find you? Yeah, so I'm Allie. And I am originally from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So, uh, and my dad, a lot of my family worked in steel mills. So that's why I have a, feel like I have a particular climate debt to pay <laughs> my work. Um, but I live in Brooklyn. Uh, I work as an artist um, and also a photo editor. And I also teach at NYU and at the New School on topics of food and media and art. I also have a futurist radio show with Montez Press Radio. And the general theme throughout a lot of my work is sort of revealing different past and future trajectories around food and consuming. I'm really interested in time scales and how we process time and how that also ties in with authorship. 
uh, which is where you get to the climate change component. But I think food brought me into a lot of different topics ranging from philosophy to the environment, to nature and culture, because it is this really intimate access point. Um, And when you're interested in something like authorship, immediately, you know, agriculture is the quintessential weird middle ground between nature and culture and humankind's first like massive scale authorship project of the environment. So it becomes an interesting place to think about that. Yeah, totally. It's also one of the last places in the traditional older history of ag story where pieces of the land and and now seeds, you know, genotypes are like closed off and become authored by people as opposed Mm -hmm. to communally authored or really authored by, you know, capital and nature. Um, So I definitely think it's an, it's an interesting like place to go look for claims about who owns what and how things are produced. Especially as we think more now about colonial settler mentalities and who was the author of our food system and who gets to say what food culture is. And the GMO component is really interesting. I was thinking recently, another artist brought up the idea that like architecture, you know, if we think broadly of architecture just as authoring space or creating different kinds of spaces and ways we engage with our environment, you could kind of think of GMOs as a form of architecture in how they control the spaces of our food system and how we engage with it. I don't have a conclusion there. It was just like a thought experiment. Like, are GMOs in some way a kind of architecture that we've built? Yeah, I really like that idea of the inter- intersection of agriculture and architecture. That's kind of at the, the core of my own work. Um, and it really makes me think of, of the Chinese artist Hu Fang, who has this amazing, really short book um, called Towards a Non-Intentional Space, which is all about this question of, it's, it's based on his conversations with the Japanese architect, Fujimoto So, And it's about the idea of like, you know, any architect, you're eventually just designing ruins that become a garden. Like no matter what you're doing as an architect, you're always ultimately just like, you have to cede to the fact that in terms of um, the timescales you're, you're, you're mentioning, right? Like that building is not going to stand forever. So it might get repurposed, it might get rebuilt, but it's very likely to end up in some form of sort of like shambles that gives rise to more vegetation and, and fungal mm-hmm. life that that's actually a kind of nice way to think about architecture that they're kind of going towards is like non-intentionality, like not knowing in advance how future humans or, or non-humans should use the space, but like stewarding it sort of for deeper time. Yeah, or, or maybe the architecture of, you know, planting or plants in general, right? So in the sense of instead of building these buildings, you're, you're building these scapes and these certain forests and plants and the concept of time of these things, like whenever you plant a tree, that is going to outlive us, depending on the tree and these other things. But, you know, and what is that going to, I mean, that's a more basic way of thinking about it. Yeah, it really, I mean, in that way, you can think of how intentional growing things is about it and how it determines how we interact with our environment, like GMOs. I was, again, talking to a fellow artist just about how they sort of predetermine how we experience space and how we understand them. And it's like already determined. And then there's this other way in which we are a little more hands-off and sort of... There's a really great artist, Pierre Hui, who who sort of... He builds these installations, but he kind of like seeds over all control to the plants and microbes that he puts in the gallery space or various like aquarium type settings um, and sort of just says they're in charge and they get to sort of determine how this whole environment plays out. And there's also some talk in 
architecture circles about the notion of like future architecture and what we're going to build for the future as needing to move away from building new stuff, new domes, new spaceships. We can't, we don't need to build new stuff. We need to work with our existing ruins. And I think ruin is kind of a good way to think about what we need to think about in the future. Everything we build might be a ruin. How do we take our existing ruins and make them into something that works with climate change or sea level rise? Yeah. And that, that actually goes into a lot of your work, right, Ali? Like with your work dwelling, you know, that, that piece that you've done, can you talk about that a little bit? Cause it, it, it you're definitely touching upon, you know, some of your actual pieces and stuff that you're reading. <laughs> yeah. So I became obsessed in a recent residency with the essay by Martin Heidegger. Well, two essays, Poetically Man Dwells and Building Dwelling Thinking. And he sort of unspools the former title phrase into this existential quandary about how to understand our existence on Earth. And it's a question that's familiar to, I think, a lot of us engaged in questions about how do we live through the sixth mass extinction? How do we live through a climate crisis? Um, And while he's speaking in a philosophical manner, I think we can actually now look at it really practically. And I was spending the residency in a dome structure that was built by a futurist architecture architect. And it got me thinking about what futurist building actually should entail. And that dwelling and our experience of dwelling on earth as a mortal um, actually has to be entangled with our environment. And so it was sort of an essay photo essay and and some artifacts, mainly rainwater collection and foraged clover tea, foraged wood sorrel jello, um, and a couple other items. But the overarching project really kind of looked at how dwelling would encompass paying attention to our environment. It would encompass more attention given to embodied cognition as a way of learning about our environment. And sort of recognizing entanglements. How do you pay attention to a glacier? Well, you have to pay attention to the rainfall in your backyard. You know, you can't pay attention to climate change if you've never paid attention to a tree. So it was a lot of those kinds of things and suggestions, uh, sort of invitations for people to um, practice foraging, not as a way to sustain themselves, but as a way to conceptually engage in an ecosystem. And with the idea that you actually learn something from a sensory engagement with a plant that's not cerebral. So actually being in it. So there is a sense of observation, right? But then it's also interesting because when you're observing, you're almost stepping outside of it. But you're also talking about this other concept of being in it and observing within it, if that's even observation anymore. (laughs) Does that make sense? Yeah, it is. It's like a weird fluid. You want to engage in sort of almost a Buddhist practice of like being within the eco ecosystem you're in and really taking part of it and noticing that a smell isn't just, you know, quote, over there. But then also, yeah, being super highly observant. And I think you can do those both at once, but it does take practice. And we're we're much more used to just seeing and naming things and keeping them over there. I was at a conference about technology and biology in Panama. And um, it's very interesting to spend a bunch of time really trying to just observe plants in an area like the the tropical moist forest with so many kinds of plants where you don't have names or I didn't have names. 
Um, and I think most people who aren't professional biologists or people who've grown up in that area have names. And even many, many things are not described. They're not named exactly still scientifically or by um, Spanish or English. They might be named probably by like a native language um, of that region. But it's, it's actually kind of hard to like recover names for things in that um, place. Whereas in most places, at least in English, I feel like I know the names for every single little thing. and I knew how to find it. And I kind of have built a career on that. And so it's very interesting to flip it and really be nameless and be unable to sort of, you have to describe things in very basic sensory perceptual terms. You know, something like you said, it smells strongly or not, it's bright color or it's dull, you know, it's hot or it's not, it's, it's like, it becomes um, so, so much more about your, your body right away. Yeah. And I, and I was also just thinking about the concept of time and observation and time and how we experience as humans time differently, possibly as plants. Like one of the things that I do in my intro to urban agriculture class is I actually have, I really suggest this to my students to do a time lapse of their plants. Um, and so they could see them moving. And so they actually see how these plants are these living things that are moving, that are reacting, that are a part of this environment, but they just go so slow. We don't see it within our time scape. So we use this technology to see, you know, them move and do all these things. So it's also, again, kind of, Ali, going back into your concept of time and like time with plants and, and nature and things like that in general and how our time as our concept of time or our view of time is kind of different. Yeah. I mean, I would call that sort of using technology to, to do to create an apocalypse. Like if you go back to the original definition, Greek definition of the word apocalypse, it just means like a revealing and an unveiling. And I think it's fun to try to do that because plants do, plants are really active and you're right, it's just on a different time scale. And similarly, mushrooms are growing and engaging in ways we just will never see. It's all happening underground. They're keeping all of our farms and ecosystems alive. And that prompted me to do a piece as part of the dwelling work where with a recipe for mushrooms, you also have, well, you have a recipe for mushrooms for humans, and then you have a recipe for mushrooms for mushrooms, which involves like sort of reculturing the mycelium and putting it back into the ground. And while you're not going to actually physically ever get to witness mycelium in the ground, you might start to understand the symbiosis a little bit more and collaborate with the mushrooms instead of just use them, <laughs> which I think is a big theme just in agriculture broadly. How do we start to think, as someone who isn't an urban gardener and who kills almost everything I grow, how do I think of this as a collaboration and not just as I need this basil and I need to use it and this is my purpose and this is its function? You know, what other existence does the basil have and how can I work with it? Yeah, so it's almost like regenerative farming within your recipe. Like you're bringing regenerative farming into the culture of a recipe or within cooking or something like that. But yeah, I, I always wonder, I think a lot about the structure of recipes because it's so um, rigid, actually. If you think of all the different forms of writing, poetry, journalism, I mean, we've played with all of them and recipes we just don't mess with. And there's so much there to tinker with. Like we could have at the bottom instructions for composting and repurposing materials. Or at the beginning, you could have, it, you know, in the ingredients and the inputs, we could talk about labor and history. And there's just so many ways that we could, I think, 
format to get at some of these other issues we're thinking of. Yeah, and I think that goes back to when you're pushing in and out of different timescales or using different sensory apparatus, you know, using your sensorium differently to sort of front load, you know, your processing as opposed to receiving impressions of things and processing it analytically. You can also think of recipes really foreshortening. They're all about just creating the food to then consume. But but to your point, what about the afterlife of that food? And what about the before life? You know, how does that how do you circularize the whole idea of a recipe? So it's not food culture isn't so divorced from agriculture culture. And I think that's something I've always found is a kind of outsider to food culture. Like when I tell people what I work on, they're always talking to me about the food. And I'm always like, I don't write about food. I write about, <laughs> you know, plants and plants and money. They're not, you know, like, yeah, it becomes food. It's for food. It's not cannabis. It's not materials. But at the same time, I, I find it really interesting that people really don't get these links. They just kind of, I don't know what they imagine, like where food comes from. But I love what you just said. You know, could a recipe always kind of have these other like boxes around it? Could it just kind of segue into other conversations more naturally. So even just what you did with recipes for non-humans, I think is a nice way to kind of reframe that and push people a little. That should, you know, maybe there's a recipe collection book out there to be worked on, just throwing it out there. I know, I'm thinking, well, and I also, in a residency group where we talked about a CSA that, so CSAs get you closer to stitching your uh, consciousness back to a farm in a way. You know, we spent decades separating ourselves from that space and CSAs get you a little closer, but what if the CSA also had, I don't know, some of the dirt and soil from the farm or a poem in it, or there's just a Zoom link and you can Zoom with some of the farm workers. We were trying to, in this residency, think of other ways that the CSA box could incorporate the culture of agriculture and not just have it, again, feel like this transactional product that's delivered to your doorstep. Contactless delivery, help us all. <laughs> I think some are doing that though. I feel like Back to the Roots was doing that like before COVID. Like I feel like if you see us really engaged with like recipe beyond just like recipes for their crops, but really talking about the story of agriculture and their their labor practices um, and are just much more interesting to read, frankly, in terms of newsletters, you know, instead of just a list of like, what carrots do I get? um, You actually like learning pieces of of stories Um, and restaurants like Clover in Boston, like they've always made this big deal of kind Mm. of where the food comes from, which I, I mean, yeah, there's a marketing component, but I do think it's really interesting. They're essentially a fast food restaurant, but they're trying to teach you, you know, about a farm, you know, whether it's nearby or, or, or far afield. But I do think that like sometimes that has gotten lost. Like even with that, like when restaurants go back, like, you know, there's that whole Portlandia episode, but, but like, well, where did this chicken come from? And how was this chicken raised? And what's the chicken's name? And where's the farm? Can we go to the farm? Okay, let's go to the farm. And then they go to the farm and it's a cult. <laughs> but I also think that like, it's, it's good to have these connections to farms and things like that. But again, you know, it's like, hey, I was a gardener for a restaurant for many, many years, you know, and, and we just did like supplemental growing and things, but I I just don't want that to be a way of like greenwashing, you know, or this idea of, you know, hey, we support this, but then what are their, you know, what what are all of their other practices? And does that fit into this dwellings concept or something else, you know? That's a really good point because I think menus in particular, as opposed to recipes, are a form of writing where restaurants are trying to communicate their values. So there's a lot of the Portlandia 
um, they're so esoteric. Some of them are so enigmatic. You're like, ooh. And it does, maybe it just lists the source of everything, but doesn't really tell you what the dish is. I think Blue Hill at Stone Barns just lists ingredients of what's in season. And then you just get what you get. And that's definitely communicating a value about the farm and about seasonality. But yeah, does it quite go far enough in actually engaging the diner with that space? And this leads me to restaurants because I was talking to a group of students from Chatham University in Pittsburgh, which also has a food studies program, about the future of restaurants. And we did a little speculation. Um, what if COVID lasts two years? Like, What if there's no vaccine, something happens, and we're in this for two years? What is the What do restaurants start to look like? And we talked about the rise of sort of all outdoor restaurants. So some restaurants that are kind of just completely moving outside or even finding new spaces to be outside. And then we thought, okay, well, what if farms or urban farms are the site of the restaurant? So you're already outside and tables take up that space. And that is a restaurant with some sort of indoor, outdoor, modular kitchen. And then what if that evolves to like a CSA co-op model where you... You don't just sit down, Portlandia style, ask about the chicken. The chicken's there. And actually, you have to help raise the chicken or you have to come help with animal slaughter or help grow. And you have to like do some labor in exchange for your dining on a Saturday night there. Well, it's like if you think about like, for example, the Brooklyn Grange, they mm-hmm. have dinners all the time. Or Roberta's would have events and weddings in the backyard where the food's growing. So there is like edible landscapes and there is that supplemental thing. Uh, or supplemental veggies. But I think it's also, and I don't know why I'm being whatever about this, but this, the deeper aspects of it. So it's no longer just an experience. Like, cause I feel like a lot of times with restaurants, you want to experience this thing, you're creating an experience. Um, but I kind of like what you're talking about in the sense that you are no longer a guest. Or, um, you know, you're no longer, you no longer have a server, you know, but this concept of something bigger and how would you do that? And that's good. That's kind of really pushing the envelope and really going out there. It's asking a lot. It's asking, it's like, well, is that just a co-op? You know, if you yeah. think about like co-op supermarkets, you are like, you know, I'm a member of the Park Slope Food Co-op and granted I'm probably I haven't worked there in forever and I'm the worst member ever, but most people are, but it, it's such a different experience when you know, you're going to have to do that shift and fill up those, you know, shelves or you're going to have to unpack the veggies. So when you're a buyer, you think about it in a very different way because you are a part of that system that replenishes it and helps it run. I just keep thinking of you saying that, uh, about service and there are no servers and service in a context like that. And my mind just keeps going to some memes I've seen just about how Americans really need to be served. Like we're, we're so desperate to get back to restaurants and there's something there about wanting to be served. And like, yeah, does this, does a co-op or CSA combo model not actually fulfill this like deeper need to just have someone serve us and like not be involved in it. I think there's kind of a willful disconnect. And I hope that like COVID has given us 
more of a perspective on the value of restaurants as cultural institutions and social institutions and not just as like small businesses. And, you know, I think we used to walk into restaurants just expecting this really straightforward service. But service and being served was never straightforward. Hospitality is actually can be a really deep act of care. Feeding someone is an intimate act. Being served is intimate and not transactional by nature. So I've just been thinking a lot about that as to how we go forward. Is there more empathy in these spaces? Do we understand being served? Especially now that we feel like servers are putting themselves at risk to serve us. It's a very different relationship, I think. Yeah, yeah. I think that's where that's where my mind goes is that it's all about um, changing the categories. So it's not, you know, it's greenwashing if you maintain the old categories of everything is a commodity or a service and it's all transactional. And then all these mm-hmm. epiphenomena are just used um, for purely cynical marketing reasons. Whereas I think what we're more engaged in is, is looking toward bigger social transformations that would have positive impacts on, on people, but also on the living environment. And that, well, what do those look like? And I think like, you know, it wouldn't, it's one thing to say a CSA is a good model for business. It's another to be committed to working with local farmers as a business. And it, yeah, it's similar. I mean, it's, an, it's one thing to tell a story on a menu in a cool font to, to make it evocative to order the whatever canapes. It's, it's different to actually like, try to educate, you know, have your praxis be about educating consumers. And what does that look like with COVID? Um, I think it's really interesting, this whole question of service, because we're seeing actually the success of logistical capital, which is you can get all your food without any of the restaurant culture. You can just get food delivered to you or whatever, pick it up. And and people, um, as you said, are hungry for more than that. So what is that other thing? And, and if you actually break them apart, you know, maybe it isn't that restaurants are small businesses, or maybe it's that communal dining isn't just a restaurant experience. It's not transactional. And I, and I think lots of other cultures around the world probably to varying degrees have have learned that lesson better or not lost it completely, which is like mm. communal dining doesn't have to be going to a restaurant and spending a bunch of money. I think here, I think that's when I grew up at least like in the nineties and in the urban South, that was, that was the only, you know, the, the family meal was like in front of the TV. So there was no other model other than going to like, I don't know what, like a red lobster, you know, a Shoney's. And I, and I think um, the New York version of that is, is much nicer, but, you know, going to Blue Hill, is it really, yeah, to your point, it, it could be teaching you something, it could not, I think. And I think it's depending on that that category. Um, so I really like sort of focusing on service. It's also, it's not something I think about. I mean, I, you you all have such different, deeper experiences with restaurant culture. Um, I think, Allie, that's why I wanted to talk to you today was just, you know, what is going on with restaurants? Kind of like, <laughs> <laughs> so. oh my gosh, I don't know. It's all over the map. I mean, yeah. I've been hearing of this so ghost kitchens, I hadn't really heard of that term, but ghost kitchens are becoming really popular, which is, well, there's virtual kitchens and ghost kitchens. Virtual kitchens are sort of like where one place, like a pizza place, uh, will make pizza, but they'll also make four other types of food that you can order on Uber Eats. So they might also be making like, they might have like a milkshake storefront and then a halal kitchen storefront. They're like making multiple restaurants at once, which is... And then the ghost kitchen is only online and to-go orders, no dine-in space. So they're physically making it in a place that has no like dine-in atmosphere or whatever. So you're taking away the decor, the tables, the human faces that work there, like communal dining. And so all you have to communicate with is the virtual ordering platform and then some packaging and the food itself. So in that way, you could say the taste of the food becomes incredibly powerful. But yeah, you're missing something in there that's really hard to put your finger on. And I guess that's why I keep coming back to like, what is the value that we have undervalued 
systemically in the restaurant industry. And, and I think you're onto something with the communal dining and that maybe to-go culture and picnic culture or something will emerge as new ways for us to engage with that um, because our food culture did kind of lose a sense of that without the restaurant space. That's an interesting concept. Like 2020 is the year of the picnic. <laughs> Do we just reframe it as that? Yes. Yeah, it sounds a lot nicer. <laughs> so much better. Wow. You should really work or, in there. Or 2020, or 2020, the year of the barbecue, right? Yeah. So it could be barbecue. It could be picnic. It could be, you know, whatever potluck, which may yeah. actually be more realistic bringing almost your own food. Yeah. I mean, and there's a lot of different models. I saw an artist who designed a picnic blanket, but it was actually like a giant circle with smaller circles around it. So you could tell when everyone was six feet apart and it's like this huge blanket you take to the park and like you can sign of use that as a, as a marker. I mean, one thing I really love is the, the rise of restaurants turning into sort of like a curated general store. Uh, some of my colleagues at Bon Appetit and I were talking about just that we didn't realize that was something we wanted uh, until this happened and that these... And chefs are now curating a grocery store for you and the wine list. And you and sure, it's more expensive, but you feel like you're supporting a curatorial entity. Again, yeah. more similar to like an artist function, you know, yeah. and that it's not just a grocery store. Yes, that reminds me of what um, Paige did with Archistratus. So she has this... Uh, cookbook store and she already had dinners but then she just went full grocery store still putting all of her books online but then also you know and she's curating all that stuff so she was like curating all these cookbooks yeah it's a really interesting kind of return to the role of the restaurateur and chef as I mean we were already viewing them as as curators in a way of what was on our plate. But any really great chef will tell you that it's all about the products. It's all about the ingredients you source and the quality of them. And so if we go back to that model, then the recipe itself matters, but not as much as the sourcing. And so maybe we should be paying them to do that in a way that fits this sort of new socially distanced approach to, to dining. Of course, these are all the positive ways that COVID changes restaurants are certainly more dystopian. <laughs> well, the close on the pot or this, this I think gets a dystopian for me, but, but based on what you just said, I was thinking it also fits with a certain trend with, I think millennial culture. And I can't even imagine what's happening beneath my, my micro generation, but you know, this idea of everyone needing a kind of guru or shaman um, and every, everything is about a lifestyle choice. So it's less sort of make me food you food sage who knows about food. I don't really care how it's made. Just make me the food. It's teach me, guide me in learning about the food story. Um, and I think that that's something maybe we've come to expect if I was a sort of outsider to restaurant studies, that that seems like a phenomenon that's happened and that we're realizing, again, that phenomenon is pretty divorced from the logistics of actually making the food. Um, and you can imagine all kinds of versions where you're getting some of that lifestyle aspect, just like the communal aspect, um, separately from literally the food part. And, and to your point, Allie, maybe the biggest piece of that actually is just sourcing is like, where do you get good food? And how do you get it in a way that, you know, is, I don't know, cost effective and, you know, works for you. So it's super interesting sort of breaking out these like assumptions about like what a restaurant is or does. Yeah, I never thought of the lifestyle trends of needing a 
sort of shaman or guide, but it's so true. And you could see restaurants that specialize maybe at some point in like starters and sourdough and, and they're guiding you through that process while also selling you. I mean, that's what home brewery stores, I mean, home brewery stores were not a thing until we like, that was a, a culture in and of itself. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's actually quite spot on. I'm trying to think of the other dystopian. Cause that one is like in the middle ground. That's like your transition point between dystopian. And that's like, okay, millennial culture that like needs to have guru of everything and sort of silos food in sometimes a problematic way. This episode is brought to you by PASA Sustainable Agriculture. Cultivating environmentally sound, economically viable, and community-focused farms and food systems. PASA Sustainable Agriculture's annual conference is one of the largest gatherings of sustainable farmers, food system professionals, and changemakers in the nation. The 2021 virtual conference takes place January 19th to February 5th and features more than 90 sessions on topics that include soil health, climate change, crop production, livestock grazing, urban agriculture, community building, food justice, and much, much more. Don't miss keynote speaker Robin Wall Kimmerer, scientist and author of Braiding Sweetgrass, Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teachings of Plants. Learn more about PASA Sustainable Agriculture's 2021 virtual conference and register online at pasafarming.org slash conference. that I was thinking about was like because of COVID when we were all kind of quarantining in our houses so many of us maybe have realized huh do I know how to cook you know like I know how to cook maybe these three or four meals but if I'm gonna cook every night for a hundred days you know like what are my skills within this and maybe that's also like that guru aspect or maybe we're going to come out of this even more of like, huh, well, maybe I learned how to cook all these things. Or maybe I still had takeout three meals a day, which I'm sure some people have, especially in this city. Some people don't have kitchens, you know, like, you know, like in their apartments. So these are other ideas, but that just made me think of that broader sense of, you know, all the things that we've realized maybe we don't know how to do. It's funny because before even COVID, I was thinking a lot about that and just about, again, going back to time scales and how we sort of absorb new normals, but we don't really think about it because we don't really process change intergenerationally, which is really great adaptive strategy for us as humans to be able to absorb new normals and change quickly. But if we... I kept thinking back to my grandma's recipes, which would have been wildly different than mine. First of all, they didn't even have ingredients or very many steps. It was all assumed knowledge that you had. And by the way, cooking a chicken involved catching it out in the yard and like killing it and plucking its feathers. And so I just kept thinking like, what are new 
recipes that will be considered normal. And that was a result in the piece I did called a recipe for potable water, where if there is enough water scarcity that we would have to find or desalinate our own water, that might be commonplace enough for it to be something your parents would show you how to do. And the normalization of recipes that used to be considered very DIY or fringe in this quarantine time keeps reminding me of that because now feeding a sourdough starter is something every Joe Schmo, oh yeah, I know how to do that. My friend showed me. Whereas I think that was considered super fringe before before this time. So there is a kind of self-education. I mean, and there was a growing DIY food movement, uh, but now it has an interesting survivalist undertone. There's kind of more of a prepper smell to it if you will, than there, than there used to be. Yeah. I remember the New York times cooking. Um, Sam Sifton was like, okay, another recipe with beans, dried beans. <laughs> I like, that was literally his like, he's like, okay, how are we going to do this? <laughs> like, how are we going to have a new weekly thing if we're all taking things from our pantry? So it was really interesting seeing like as a food writer, that shift or, you know, putting these recipes out there okay, now here we are. We're actually in it. We are in quarantine. We are in the Anthropocene. This is what recipes look like curated, you know? Yeah, there are some interesting adaptations that I did to recipes just based on availability. I mean, we went a 15-day streak without going to any sort of store, which I was pretty proud of, but it did require some creativity. I found canned pumpkin from a Thanksgiving photo shoot that was turned into quesadillas. They're actually pretty good. Pumpkin bean quesadillas. But yeah, you see evidence of these kind of pivotal shifts in mainstream food media where, I mean, we basically overnight um, at Bon Appetit kind of stopped covering restaurants. I mean, we covered them in dispatches about how they were handling COVID closures. Uh, Some really interesting insights there in terms of what chefs see as like the future of restaurant labor and equity there. A lot of them are hoping to get rid of tipping for good after this because it's become so apparent how much a lack of equity there is in restaurant labor. And also a lot of restaurants speaking to the rise of vegan and vegetarian diets in quarantine, whether it's because people feel like they have the space and time to try it out or they're trying to be healthier. I digress. We pivoted to recipes that would be easy to make out of your pantry. And we kind of all were frantically using our own pantry to cook and photograph these things and going through it. Just the novel, the, the edit, we call it an edit point whenever you are trying to evaluate a recipe or a story for like how it's going to be presented. The edit, all of the edit points related to novelty, fun, um, rarity, all went away overnight. It was really irresponsible to run any recipe where you had to source some really specific cheese. That all of a sudden became like nearly offensive. So it, yeah, it was a really big shift in sort of how you present recipes to the public. Yeah, can I can I just say based? Uh, I was just thinking of that as well. My my partner's from Thailand, and we normally get most of our vegetables from the Chinese grocers in Elmhurst, but they were closed for the whole first two months. Um, and it was really interesting to see overnight the shift in like what we could eat because like our vegetable base completely shifted. Um, and now it's actually returned. A lot of the the restaurants are still closed, but people are doing a lot more like. I guess this goes back to more like the ghost kitchen thing, but like I don't know if they're random people or people who are in food service. I have no idea, but they're like have Facebook groups where they offer 
to like deliver you some prepped meals. You can go pick up stuff. But it's really shifted for me that landscape of like what vegetables are in my house and where do I get them? And thus, like what ultimately can I cook with them? Um, in a way that like I didn't like when COVID happened, that was definitely not that wasn't even like my hundredth thought, you know, like, oh no, where's like where's the U Choi? Um, but sure enough, like there just wasn't any like one day, you know. It's really bizarre to think about how little I think even I think like I don't think a lot about my foodscape in that way, like what foods are available to me or that I'm used to consuming. And when you have to change that, it's like it's kind of a big deal. I don't know. Well, yeah, because that's food culture. You know, those varieties are part of your food culture. And then I'm wondering if that would, like, has that push you to now grow, like, Thai basil, you know? Yeah, of course. Well, now, yeah, we started growing. We're just waiting. Stuff's germinating really slowly. Um, but yeah, no, we, we started growing a bunch of basil. Yeah. That's all to say. Yeah, Ali, what other... So that's, like, one big effect, right, that you felt professionally. Um, but what are some other sort of very, even if they seem obvious, I feel like you have a really interesting perspective. I'm like, or I don't know. I mean, it doesn't have to be dystopian, but I'm just thinking like so much has changed, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's hard to take a read on. I felt like, I feel like speculation is really hard right now because I think I was talking to you White, about this. It's like when it's that feeling that the future ends, when you feel like you've lived through a novel that you have read um, and you're like, oh, the pandemic quarantine I've read in sci-fi actually happened. And now speculation feels impossible and or, again, somewhat irresponsible in a way because you're already in the thing. And that brings me to my like earlier rant on disasters. Oh, yeah. I want to get back to that. So do you want to... <laughs> so, yeah, I feel like speculation is really hard right now. Uh, but the reality that I was thinking about whenever people say normal, like when do we go back to normal or what is the new normal is that there never was a normal. And especially in the restaurant industry, normal was crushing. I mean, I talked to restaurant owners in Pittsburgh and they were like, this finally gave us a second to breathe and actually ask what we even want our restaurant to be. We've been working 50 hour weeks for five years. We've never taken a vacation and how hard it is for them to have a livelihood, for their staff to have a livelihood. And then just broadly, the disasters of wealth inequality, climate change, um, the Anthropocene, so many things around us that feel untenable. And I went back to this book called Expect Resistance. And I have to look at the author. Uh, and in there, there's an argument that we are already in the capital D disaster. That is what, quote unquote, was normal. Our existence of late capitalism, climate change, really, you know, a lack of equity in working conditions, especially on farms and in restaurants as we're, you know, looking at that aspect. And then there are all these lowercase d disasters that it, the argument goes, those in charge want us to look at as the coming and going disasters. So there's COVID um, and George Floyd. They want us to see these as temporary disasters that will then be over, quote unquote. And I think a lot of us feel now that the small D disasters aren't the real disaster. The capital D disaster that we've all been living in is the one to focus on. And that what we consider normal in terms of everything from, you know, agriculture to climate change to race, racism in the US was not normal. And I just keep thinking of that. And it's so it's hard to speculate because you're like, well, could it be just completely different? It's not really about restaurants going back to trying to be the way they were. I mean, they will, 
But what becomes permanently pivoted for better or for worse? You know, in Maine, they have a law now that when you seat someone at a restaurant, because they're opening open again, you have to take their phone number and their name so that in case there's an outbreak, they get a contact tracer is on staff to then start calling everybody and find out where it came from and inform people. I don't know if it's more about sourcing the outbreak or informing people. And so there's a weird level of surveillance that's now going to be really permissible in restaurants that concerns me. And I had one student suggest that for people who were nervous about the sanitation in restaurants, that restaurants might install cameras in the kitchen that would then be live streamed online. And you could like check on your phone uh, to see that they're all wearing masks and gloves and feel better about eating there, you know, as one potential speculation. And I was disturbed because that sounds like something a restaurant would do, like an Olive Garden. I don't know, not to hate on Olive Garden, but you know, some of these, some of those kinds of things do worry me and sort of add to the feeling that as we try to like hurry up and get ourselves back to normal, we're going to make some very weird concessions. Yeah. I mean, broadly, I think what you're saying is, is this stuff I'm I'm most worried about because it, it could play out different ways. I mean, it's good for people to realize, um, to to be aware and mark that we're in, you know, the capitalist scene or plantationist scene or anthropocene. Um, and if this, if COVID becomes the mark for it for most people, even if Scott, as scholars debate the golden spike moment being, you know, plantation economies or uh, coal at Newcastle or uh, the radiation spike after the Trinity test. The real one might be for most people's consciousness, you know, COVID and holy crap, you know, our world is actually very fragile. Logistical capital is incredibly fragile. So that's kind of a good outcome in that it is fragile and we are screwing it up and we are, you know, we have to change stuff. Um, but, but as you bring up, the downside is that it really re-entrenches this crisis narrative. I think in the social sciences, like Janet Waitman writes a lot. She wrote an amazing book and some popular articles about crisis. And this idea of crisis is this like, permanent tool by which um, the neoliberal state gets to, to sort of create exceptions. You know, there's always a problem that means we can't do governance as usual. We can't have a normal social contract. We need to privatize something to just create a fast solution. So tech companies, we're just going to need you to surveil everyone in every restaurant because, hey, there's no time to really figure out anything else better. We don't even have time to like do elections right. Um, how would we then, you know, govern? And I think this, this rhetoric has been used well before COVID, but COVID in some ways, I mean, that's some people are very rightly, I think, worried about like, what will Trump do when it seems pretty obvious he's going to lose a fair election? How rigged will it get? Um, and, you know, how, how many of these like, what ifs can you play out when you realize that like, yeah, they now have the excuse, not just of the real crises of climate disruption and massive injustice and inequity, but but to your point, this like, this very neatly handed to them science fictional like pandemic scenario, where in the movies, you know, immediately there's kind of the, the fascistic leader gets to do whatever, you know, he or she probably he wants to resolve the the story, you know, and I, I think that is um, really a danger across all sectors. But I can definitely imagine for essential workers, people are prepping food who are already not getting paid a lot and putting themselves at risk to make food. Yeah. And also just a sense of like ice, you know, think of service workers, think yeah. of people who are working in the kitchens, think of people who are wiping the tables down. You know, think about people who are busing the tables. Think about people who are cleaning those spaces constantly. They are the new essential workers in a way, keeping the population safe. But then if there is all of this monitoring, are, are they going to want to go back? Because in them going back, are they actually putting themselves in at risk at a whole nother way? Not only getting COVID, 
but also in the sense of if they are not like an illegal worker or, or if they're, you know, if they're not a legal worker or these other things, that whole other aspect of it, or if the Department of Health is watching all of these videos, you know, like all of this other stuff, which the Department of Health is there for the public, you know, but it's like, usually you get a visit from the Department of Health, the whole kitchen is freaking out <laughs> and then they go <laughs> and then you get your yeah. grade. But if they're watching all the time, like who's, who's also going to be, who's also going to want to work in those conditions? I know it seems very, I mean, we've justified surveillance in the past. I mean, this is like post 9-11, how much surveillance we justified um, under the guise of safety. Uh, and you can even see like how convenience foods and frozen foods and a lot of processed foods that are bad for us were pushed as a technological solution to the harder work of dealing with the fact that women wanted to and had to enter the workforce in different ways. And instead of the hard conversation of how do we divide labor in the household, industry stepped in and said, no, it's fine. Just take this frozen dinner and this technology and these machines, and then you'll still be a good mom and still be able to put food on the table. And we won't have to do the harder work, the cultural work, the societal work. So it feels again, sort of like you're pointing out that that situation where we're going to have the tech companies rush in and, and quote, do the work for us or make us feel safe and help us get back, quote, to normal. But I was thinking the same thing of just how disproportionately this would impact minorities and immigrants, not only as labor in a lot of these restaurants that could be part of a new surveillance system, but also just Black restaurant owners, restaurants owned by people of color, since there's a systemic lack of access to capital and resources, those folks will be hard-pressed to reopen or open anew. And the added layer of surveillance, like you point out, for um, immigrant communities is just, I don't know, I just think it'll really disproportionately affect those folks. Yeah, and this is where it intersects with with other stuff going on because the tech companies um, just announced that they're not going to work with law enforcement with facial recognition AI anymore. Um, or they're putting, you know, they're, they're doing slightly different things, but the, the big tech companies all agreed to at least put a moratorium and or like go back to the roots about, you know, why they're doing facial recognition and, and how that could be used by law enforcement because um, they've been within their own ranks. People have come forward and said there is so much algorithmic bias. This so disproportionately gets it wrong when it comes to non-white people that, you know, why would you ever use this software? It's garbage. And, you know, I'm not saying that that will happen or even could happen with um, restaurant surveillance, but I wonder if that could, you know, how much can, can we begin to link up these like justice issues? And I don't know, I, I guess like, I guess, Allie, what I'm, what I'm trying to turn towards is like, what should we do? You know, what are some things that you've seen that, that like, I don't know, someone listening uh, could participate in or what do you recommend? Well, my first thought is that, especially when we talk about facial recognition, there is this, uh, sorry, bullshit assumption that has to do with Ray Kurzweil. So there's this assumption among technologists based off of Ray Kurzweil that um, there's a natural evolution, evolutionary progress of technology where it's going to happen anyway, so we might as well do it. And this is an argument for Clearview AI who developed a unprecedented and massive facial recognition database. And the thought is, well, someone's going to do it. And so we're going to do it, quote unquote, responsibly. And when it comes to many facets of technological progress, I feel like people use that as a justification to do things that are really questionable. And 
I immediately just think of things that we already do regulate that we didn't let get out of control. Um, I mean, there's a lot of technology and agriculture in drugs that we have regulations on it. We stopped certain aspects of quote unquote progress because we realized they weren't benefiting society. I'm not trying to be a Luddite, but I think that a lot is justified under that guise. I think people should question technological progress and question what we define as progress. Um, and I think some of these COVID quote regressions, things that we've peddled backwards into cooking for ourselves in some ways and re-engaging with food in a different way is progress for us as a society and a culture. I guess I don't have a lot of specific recommendations other than embracing nuance in technology where you can and not wholly rejecting things, but also not wholly embracing um, technology as a solution for very contemporary and modern problems but ones that still might require, I don't know, nuance or or a more complex approach. I mean, my general recommendation is always to people to find ways to grow and engage with their food system and smell things and notice the smells and tastes of their environment and their food system. I mean, that sounds really obvious. Of course, you taste food that you order takeout. But as much as we can to engage with the people and the places it's coming from, because if we allow this sort of the umbrella of contactlessness to pervade every aspect of our food culture, we lose a lot. Yeah, Ali, in, in you saying this, it, it kind of brought it back to the idea of your work on dwelling and in the sense of not observing ourselves so much, like mm-hmm. not watching ourselves so much, not using technology to watch ourselves as much, but actually observing the world, the food, the things being grown, being immersed, entangled within that. Yeah, I mean, I do. I think our ego gets in our way all the time, which is an ancient problem. That's nothing new, but technology maybe makes it easier to indulge in our own lives and our own selves. But yeah, we need to find ways to re-entangle ourselves with our environment, even if that's just our city block, there's an amazing cookbook called Eat Your Sidewalk, which is sort of a conceptual way to engage with your sidewalk in that way. And yeah, I'm trying to figure out for myself what that means. I'm kind of working on trying to figure out how to distill the sense of different landscapes, including like soil and weeds like dandelion, but try to preserve them in a perfume or an oil-based perfume of some kind of format with like a high cultural value, but have them be smells of our environment. Ooh, wait. So, um, sorry. And I know we need to go soon, but in that, maybe you could make perfumes. This, this goes, takes it to another level, but of bacteria. Cause like bacteria <laughs> is the thing that makes that soil smell, that fresh rain smell, that rain, you know, that smell after it rains. It's a bacteria. Ah, I love that. I will. I don't know how to do that, but I will work on it. <laughs> You'll grow those bacteria. You're pretty much making soil perfume. That's what I'm telling. You. Yes. Yes. Well, you can also engineer. Yeah, I, that's you know, to GMOs. That is a petrichor is the chemical, and you can engineer the mm. pathway to create petrichor. Um, and that's like an iGem like project. Mm. Just throwing it out there. Sorry, Allie, What were you going to say? No, I just I love thinking about these things because I think it's really hard to get at what we should look at to make sure our food culture, when we rebuild our food culture after quarantine. And I mean, 
rebuild public food culture. I think we've all re-engaged in our domestic food culture in a very real way. Uh, how do we build it in a way that it's what we want? And it isn't just like a weird plexiglass maze of surveillance. And so I think by engaging safely, which is many smells and bacteria and people as possible and not, yeah, I think that's, that's probably the path forward. Yeah, I like that. I think I think about um, different levels of intentionality, and I think something your work points to, um, as we said, is levels of intention with regard to time, but also, for example, sociality. So, mm-hmm. on this call, we talked about you know being intentional about um, eating with, as opposed to eating alone, or cooking versus being cooked for, being served, um, and these kind of experiences, which often I think we we just kind of flatten it all, and it becomes about um, that kind of critique of consumer society problem of having infinite choices, but only on one level. So you're always going out to eat at a restaurant and you can eat anything in New York that you want up until COVID, but you're not really engaging in different forms of sociality necessarily. Sometimes you're alone or with a friend or whatever it is, but, um, but you could be more intentional actually about the things that matter, the affect, you know, what is the point of um, not just fueling your body, but creating these kind of ritual moments, whether it's even if you're eating with someone over zoom, I don't know if you guys have had an experience of like, talking to a friend or family and you're both eating, but you're not in the same room, uh, you're mediated by a screen, but it doesn't, you know, of course it's not the same, but it does preserve some aspects of that communality. And I think that's something I've walked away from this quarantine thinking about is, is like, what, what else do I want from food besides literally the metabolic parts or the taste, which of course, I mean, yeah, that's why you've gone out, but I don't know. I don't know if that circles back. I feel like that touches on some of your uh, stuff. Your, your work is amazing, by the way. I'm sorry. We should, we could talk a lot more about your specific projects and I, I am curious what you're up to next. So maybe um, in general, if you have final thoughts, love to hear them. Uh, but also like, yeah, are there other things you're working on that you're excited about? Um, and we should probably wrap it up after that. Dirt perfume. Dirt perfume is the next. Bam. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. No, I really, I have tried some Zoom experiments where I projected Zoom onto a big seamless roll. And I did them outside and with like stage dinners of people. And for some of them, we both started from the same recipe, but based on the ingredients in our respective pantries, they turned out very different. So I did try some of these engagements to try to use the technology to get at commensality. And I might try to do it still at some galleries outside, but we'll see. We'll see how that goes. I mean, yeah, for now, again, I feel like speculation has been kind of hard, but I'm really interested in in like using oil, oil as a conveyor of time because it is by natural preservation, but in a way to be a preserver of smells and to figure out ways to make some of these connections, especially because of the COVID situation, we're cut off from each other and the smells of each other. And you know, we have these masks on, you can't smell anything. And also weirdly, a side effect of COVID for some people is a loss of smell. So I don't know 100% where it's going, but figuring out a way to re-incorporate smell as one first step. Yeah, and also smell um, can bring forth nostalgia or memory, mm-hmm. right? It's such a triggering. So are we all gonna, if we all have COVID, are we gonna forget this? Because <laughs> we couldn't smell it. <laughs> Oh man. Well, and maybe if it, my theory is that if, if smell helps us like time travel backwards in that weird way, maybe it can also help us time travel forward. Like if we are smelling things that are part of a prospective future, it makes that future more of a reality, like seaweed or cactus or alternative ingredients. I don't know. I'm putting it out there. Time travel through foods. You can fact check me later. <laughs> 
fighting anosmia, you know, fighting COVID by the thing COVID seems to hate the most, which is smell. <laughs> yes. It smells as pretty. There we go. The, the burst of petrichor that recalls some rain after school and childhood, you know, coming home. Allie, uh, I think we have to stop because we've been talking to you for an hour and it feels like, you know, there's other yeah. other conversations you surely need to be part of. Thank you so much. Um, really oh, thank you. Well, we will, we will definitely hit you up again. We'll probably try to talk more in the future. But for now, um, yeah, I really appreciate you, your, you and your work. And um, tell people uh, who are listening to this at some point in the future, I don't know when exactly, but um, what is the best way to reach you? Should they just Google Allie Wist or go to your website? Yeah, uh, Allie Wist, spelled A-L-L-I-E-W-I-S-T, and you'll find me. Thanks so much to our guest, Ali Wist. Fields theme music is by Sam Tyndall. Our wonderful producing engineer is Liam Warner. And another big thanks to Liam Warner for the music on this episode. Fields is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.